Friends, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast, which is strung together after our live stream dropped, I don't know, a million times on Sunday. It has been a struggle from the very first moment that we have done this, and I'm so appreciative of your patience and your generosity so that we can continue to try to solve this issue. Holden Garrett has just made it happen this quarter, and so next time you see him, be sure to give him a high five. We're going to continue trying to figure this out. We want to continue to be able to live stream and do it well in the weeks to come, and so please actually just be praying for us. This sermon is from 1 Peter chapter 4. It's the second half of chapter 4. It's Peter's last address on suffering, and I'm super excited for you to listen to it. And uh, yeah, so here, take a listen. We love you. Grace and peace. I'm going to go ahead and start us out again. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. In the 15th or 16th century, scholars aren't precisely sure when, an Italian, Hippolytus de Marsili, devised a form of torture commonly known as Chinese water torture. So yes, Chinese water torture is actually something that came about in Italy. And here's what happens. In Chinese water torture... Cold water is slowly and steadily dripped onto a prisoner's forehead, uh, or, or maybe even their scalp. And it's an effort to break their will and break their spirit. Now, a couple of years ago, that show Mythbusters studied this form of torture and discovered that it is relatively ineffective, and that's because water that drips at a predictable interval Uh, Water that drips at a predictable and consistent interval can effectively be tuned out. You can almost treat it like meditation. And so the show overall debunked this form of torture. But then a few episodes later, the showrunners of Mythbusters received an anonymous tip that that, that said this. The the person who wrote in the tip said that they found that when the drops were randomized— Uh, when the drops were intermittent, when the prisoner couldn't expect when the next one was to come, that made the form of torture all that much more effective. In fact, the tip writer said that by making the drips random, they could... Let's jump back in. If you look carefully at 1 Peter, you find what kind of suffering the Christians that he's addressing are experiencing. He uses words like reviling and mocking and maligning, words like insulted, words like slandered to describe their suffering. These Christians aren't being persecuted. They've not been targeted by their government. They're just being mocked. They aren't being killed. They are being slowly tortured by passive-aggressive remarks around the dinner table, by unfair prices in the marketplace, by mistreatment from coworkers, slander told by neighbors, lies told by friends. And so here's my question for you this morning. What's worse? What's worse? The fast, intense, bloodthirsty persecution of the second and third centuries in which you were found in the night, dragged from your bed, tried before, a jury, uh, tried before a judge, declared guilty, and fed to lions in a manner of 24 hours. Is that worse? Or is the slow, unpredictable, painful drip, drip, drip of slander and mockery and reviling from people that you love, people that you trust, What's worse? 
This slow, irregular, almost random water torture suffering of the Christians in Turkey is why Peter is writing yet another section on suffering. This anonymous tip to Mythbusters said this irregular random water droplets could induce psychotic break within 20 hours. Peter sees the believers about to lose their heads. Peter sees that abandoning their faith, throwing up their hands, and returning to their old ways of life is as a real possibility as the world, the flesh, and the devil, the spiritual forces of darkness, wages war against their souls. This is why Peter has called them exiles and sojourners. He wants them to see why they are treated differently. And that's because there has been a fundamental change in their identity almost overnight. Peter has called them toward submission and honor as exiles and sojourners. Because it turns out that taking the high road in the face of mockery is actually taking the low road of humility and tenderheartedness. Two weeks ago, we looked at Peter's first passage on suffering. We looked at another last week. Now we're looking at the third. Peter has gone to war with every possible temptation facing these believers in an effort to help them endure the suffering they are experiencing at the hands of non-believers who mock and malign them. And so in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, Peter told us, that suffering is the path to victory and blessing, a path on which we are protected from the spiritual forces of darkness who behind the scenes manipulate our human opponents. In 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, he told us that suffering is the path to holiness. And on that path, we find compassion and companionship through the spiritual family that we find in the church. And now in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, Peter wants us to see that suffering, see suffering in the way of Jesus, is a path of participation, preparation, and purification. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and look with me at 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. I'll read the whole thing. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Look again at chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where Peter gives an introduction to his next line of thought. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice. It's easy to get comfortable while following Jesus. It's easy to entrench yourself in the enclave of exiles, the church, and to get busy doing church things with your church people and with good intentions, accidentally lose touch with what is going on in the world. 
Then suddenly you find yourself at a family reunion or a graduation party or out to dinner with friends. All of these, by the way, I'm assuming outside six feet away while wearing masks. And then bam, you are in the middle of it. Some kind of conversation that may not be about you, but is certainly about people like you. And there, veiled in Midwestern nice, are passive-aggressive comments. And in those passive-aggressive comments, your story, your faith, is being maligned. And when that happens, the first emotion to hit us is often surprise, but Peter is trying to reorder our inner world, our internal response. He's trying to redirect it away from surprise and towards joy. Peter says we shouldn't be surprised when this happens to us as if it was something strange. Peter is saying that this experience of feeling like a fish out of water, of feeling uncomfortable, is a normal part of, for those who walk the way of Jesus, a normal part of life for those who walk the way of Jesus. And so Peter suggests instead of being surprised when these moments happen, we should have joy. This is an echo of what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. Even earlier in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter wants us to find our way to joy when we suffer, and he tells us that we can find our way to joy. We can find our way to joy when we view our suffering as participation, as preparation, and as purification. Peter says that joy is available to us in suffering in this life because suffering is a means by which we get closer to Jesus. We participate in the sufferings of Jesus, and in that participation, we come to know Jesus more intimately. Look at 1 Peter 4.13, just the first half of that sentence. Rejoice insofar as you share, other translations say, participate in the sufferings of Christ. Peter says that when we suffer, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are participating in the sufferings of Jesus. We are becoming into touch with a unique part of the life and ministry of Jesus. This is like Paul saying in Philippians 3, verse 10, that my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Ironically, many Christians pray very earnestly to avoid or escape from suffering. And in doing so, they miss out on life's greatest treasure, knowing Jesus more. Here's the secret, that the, that the people who have suffered most, in my experience, know Jesus most deeply. The people who have not suffered lack the maturity and character of that those who have suffered so often have. Some of the most faithful people I know are those who have suffered most, whether physically or emotionally or mentally. And this is true of all suffering, but the suffering that Peter has in view here is the suffering that comes from righteous living. And when we live with integrity and commitment to the way of Jesus we experience naturally this slow drip drop of suffering for righteousness sake. We experience in that moment then more of Jesus. 
Jesus who said, blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you. Peter radically calls us to embrace that suffering as we practice the way of Jesus, not as something to be just to endure, but to embrace as we get to know Jesus more. It is participation. Suffering in the way of Jesus then is also preparation. The slow water torture of maligning and mockery and sarcasm and passive aggression that we receive as exiles, Peter says, is participation with Jesus, but it is also preparation for what is to come. Peter says in verses 13, in, in verse 13 and 14, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may, this is verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The operative word in verse 13 is when. We rejoice in our sufferings now because they are participation with Christ. We rejoice in our sufferings now because they are a preparation for his final coming. So much of Peter's letter has had to do with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means Jesus' second coming. Our suffering now prepares us for Jesus' coming. It's like Peter is saying that if we are rejoicing now in our sufferings, we will certainly rejoice then when Jesus is revealed, or or think about it a different way. Um, I think it's an open secret that I have avoided athletics my whole life, and now I suddenly have found myself with a child who loves to be outside, who loves to climb and crawl and move. I don't understand it. Uh, Here's my assumption. being a football player is really hard at any level. In high school, I had friends that were football players. They had these things called two-a-days. That sounds awful. It's like two practices a day in 90-degree August Northeast Ohio humidity meets with more practices, meets with games where you are tackled to the ground and beat up and all of these things. That is a great deal of suffering, um, I assume, But wouldn't the suffering be worth it if you knew with certainty that you would win the game? If you knew with 150% certainty that that winning was the outcome of the game, you wouldn't just endure suffering. You wouldn't just be steadfast in suffering. You would embrace suffering. You would meet it with joy because it is a worthwhile price to pay for the victory. This is kind of what Peter is trying to get at here, that our suffering is totally reframed when we think about the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of days, that he is returning, that the victory is assured, and that reverberates backwards to make our suffering not just something to grit our way through it, something that we embrace as a way to be more ready for Jesus' return, uh, more faithful to him, and more deeply in touch with who Jesus is. We've seen participation, we've seen preparation, and now he wants to talk about purification. But before he does, he offers a caveat. Look at verses 14 through 16. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That word blessed actually in Greek, it's the word makarios. It means congratulations. You could translate that. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, congratulations is due to you. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and by the way, it's interesting that Peter would invoke the name Christian because at this time in history, Christians did not call themselves Christians. 
you called yourself a follower of the way. It only, the only people who called people Christians were people outside of Christianity. It was used to kind of like mock and slur. So he's saying if someone calls you a Christian, which they're probably using in a certain tone of voice, don't be ashamed. Instead, let him glorify God in that name. See, this name that the world would use to shame you or to manipulate you or to mock you, we receive as praise. We receive as, wor- as something of congratulations. I like how the message translates verse 14. If you're abused because of Christ, count yourself fortunate. It's the Spirit of God and His glory in you that brought you to the notice of others. We become a target not simply because of our, we become a target because of our way of life, but because people are sensing something about us. It's what brings us to their notice. Peter's core caveat here is that if you're going to suffer, you'd best be suffering for righteousness' sake. This is exactly what he said in chapter 3, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He doesn't want these new Christians who might still be attracted to thieving in their old way of life to continue to be a thief, and then when they suffer for doing evil, say, oh, I'm being mistreated because I'm a Christian. Christians are really, really good at doing wrong things things and then saying they must be being persecuted for doing that wrong thing. Peter says, no, no, no. If you're persecuted by being called a Christian, if you're, if you're being mistreated for being called a Christian, if you're being maligned uh, for living into the way of Jesus, you are to be congratulated. But if you're suffering because you're a murderer or an evildoer or a thief, and I love this word, or a meddler, isn't it interesting that Peter is like, don't be a murderer, which, you know, I, as far as I know, nobody in our community is a serial killer. So I think we can all rest assured that that doesn't apply. Um, you know, I, I don't know about thieving. I don't know about evil doing. But meddling is something that everyone in our community does from time to time. Meddling is what it means to live a life on social media. Meddling is what it means to talk about other people. Meddling, the word that Peter uses, it's actually used in the New Testament only once, which makes it a hopox legomenon, which is one of the best words I've ever heard. And also makes you think, legomenon. Legomenon. Um, It's more fun to do jokes when there are actually people in the room to laugh at you. Um, Or maybe like at me, not at the joke. And This hapax legomenon, this meddling word, literally all of the Greek words that he strings together means watching over one another's, watching over another's affair. It literally has like kind of this, like kind of looking over at somebody else's life and checking out what's going on. It's it's social media. It's kind of this like I'm watching what's happening. It's talking then about did you see what so-and-so or did you notice that so-and-so meddling. It's getting over-involved in someone's affairs. Peter says, if you're going to suffer, don't be suffering because you're a meddler. Suffer for the name of Jesus. He's calling us to righteousness because it's only righteous suffering. It's only suffering in the way of Jesus that is participation and, and preparation and purification. Everything else is just a waste of time. So then he does turn his attention to, to purification. He says, uh, he's told us to rejoice in our sufferings because it's a participation in the life of Jesus, a preparation for the return of Jesus. And he says it's a purification to make us more like Jesus now. Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Household here, remember in chapter 2, he talked about being a house 
that is not only a place where a family dwells, but also a temple where God dwells. This is a temple picture. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, notice, judgy Christians, it is not about pointing fingers at the world and telling them how bad they are. Judgment begins where? With us. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, he quotes, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter is saying is that there's a sense in which our sin is so great that were it not for the intervention of God, we would be, we would be helpless. We're, we're, in some senses, we're saved to the uttermost, is what John Wesley would say, but in some senses, we're barely making it across the line as it is. And if we, who are part of the household of God, who by faith belong to Jesus, and it's intense for us, the suffering we experience of participation and purification and preparation is so intense. Imagine how it would be if you're not a Christian, but his eyes, he wants our eyes on our own paper, church. He wants our eyes on us, and he says, let judgment begin with the household of God. Let judgment begin with God's dwelling place, his people. Let judgment begin here. The last quarter since we last saw each other, has been a time of judgment. It has been a time of cleaning house. And by the way, notice what judgment and testing is happening. The judgment and testing is this fiery trial. It is, it is this trial that Peter mentions in chapter 1, verses 6 or 7. He says, pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure. Faith, genuine faith put through suffering comes out proved genuine. That's the judgment that's happening. That's the purification that's happening is that our faith, our lives have been placed in the fiery trial of COVID-19. Our ch- the church in America has been placed in the fiery trial of are you going to care about oppressed people of color in your nation or are you not? And what God is doing is beginning judgment with us. What God is doing is beginning judgment with us. I have watched Two kinds of Christian responses, both within our church and without it, over the last quarter. There are those who have pressed in, grown deeper, and have, are, are about to enter a season of crazy fruitfulness in the kingdom. And there are those who have taken a Christian vacation for the last quarter. And whenever we regather in this space, that is going to be very disturbing to some in our community. I would like to go back to the clip. I wish we could do that. Could we go back to the clip of like my second Sunday? Um, when it was like my wife's iPhone right there, and this is what I said, and this is what's proving true, is that there are going to be people, when you see them in June, that are walking in a character and maturity and authority that makes them fundamentally a different person than who they were in March. Because in this time of judgment and testing, they have pressed in. Others are going to come in, and what is not going to disturb them is how the space will be arranged or how we have to do a different traffic pattern or this, that, or the other. What will disturb them is that person that I thought was kind of on the fringes of our community is now at the very center because of their character and godliness. Judgment is beginning now, and that judgment, by the way, is yet another step in preparation for the revival that is coming. The cleaning house that God is doing across the church nationally, by the way, whether in regard to um, just Christianity in general, 
because being kind of a nominal Christian in COVID-19 has made you almost essentially a non-Christian. Um, or whether it's, are we going to respond faithfully and with just mercy to, to the massive issue of systemic racism in our country? And by the way, what I'm trying to figure out as, as I lead our spiritual family is not just how do we respond and react this week, but how is it that in 12 to 24 months we are a more just and more um, intentional community as it relates to issues of race in our country? I'm not super worried about our response this week. I'm super worried about who we're becoming two years from now, right? This is the judgment that's beginning with the household of God. This is the fiery trial into which we have been placed. And what is happening is that faith is being proved genuine or not, deep or shallow, fruitful or fruitless, of amazing character or just whitewashed tomb. This is a time of purification. The suffering that we experience in this life, suffering for righteousness' sake, is a purification. The fiery trial Peter is talking about in verse 12, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you to test you. It's not fiery because of its intensity. It's fiery because it's purpose to reveal, to purge away the dross. And so Peter in verse 19, participation, Preparation, purification, offers a summary statement in verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In essence, there are two commands. The first first command is this, do good. Do good, live out with intentionality, integrity. Everything I have said to this point in this letter and everything else I will say in the fifth chapter, do good. As a plast of, as a, experience suffering as a path to victory and holiness and blessing and purification and participation, do good. Live a life of commitment and integrity to the way of Jesus. Live your life how Jesus lived his life. Live your life how Jesus would live your life if he were you. Do good, and then, whether suffering comes or doesn't come, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And that verb, entrust, is the same verb that Jesus uses when he, on the cross, says, into your hands I entrust or commit my spirit. It is impossible. It is impossible to do this. Had not Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Without this moment of Jesus entrusting himself to his faithful creator, without Jesus' death, without Jesus' resurrection, without the gift of the Holy Spirit that Peter calls the spirit of God and of glory, this doing good and entrusting would be impossible. But by faith we are given new eyes and new strength. For they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, Jesus is calling us to the very place that he himself has been. Jesus never asks us to go somewhere he has not gone. And so this Jesus, who said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, says to you and I, entrust your, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good, even if you suffer. 
Yesterday, I reached out to a friend of mine whose presence on social media is just great. He's always insightful. It's hopeful. It's winsome. It's so strikingly of the way of Jesus. And so, of course, that means he ticks people off because he's not picking a side in any particular debate. He's always choosing the way of Jesus, who is really on nobody's side but his own. And so in the last 10 days, amidst a national conversation and outrage over systemic injustice and oppressions toward people of color in our country, this friend of mine, he has been winsome, he has been kind, and he has been challenging of the presuppositions most white middle-class Christians have toward this conversation. So I read a post of his yesterday, and I felt a nudge uh, while Steph was in a grocery store and Jack's in the back, we're just hanging out. I felt this nudge to just reach out to him and say, hey, I, I think this is really good what you're doing. And so I did that. And I sooner than later got a reply that the encouragement was much needed because the heat that he's been taking this week has been unusually intense. And I immediately thought of this passage. I immediately thought of what he's talking about because the heat that my friend experiences as he stands up for truth um, and, and by the way, the, the heat is just all over the internet, but the heat that he's experiencing is the exact heat that Peter has in mind in this passage. If my friend were listening to today, I, I'd want him to know that the heat he's taken this week is hard and frustrating and discouraging, but it is also a participation in the life of Jesus. And this friend of mine, by the way, knows Jesus. He like smells like Jesus. It is also preparation for the coming kingdom. It is the purification of his life to make him more willing and ready to entrust his soul to a faithful creator while doing good. If these passages in 1 Peter 3 and 4, if they seem irrelevant, if these long, careful, yes, sometimes intricate stuff said to me, I feel like we keep getting bogged down. And I was like, yeah, because there's weird exegetical and textual issues in most of these passages. But if these long, careful, intricate reflections on suffering seem pointless to you, seem irrelevant to you, if they seem like they don't apply, I wonder if it's because you aren't fully living into the reality of the way of Jesus. These early Christians, because of their integrity, because of their commitment to the way of Jesus, they were mocked and slandered because in a moment, their lives had become so different than the lives of those in their surrounding culture that they stood out, as my grandfather would say, like a sore thumb. And if we aren't suffering in similar ways, if these passages seem irrelevant, I can't help but wonder if it's because we are living a life of half-conviction if we are living not solely as citizens of heaven, but we are trying to attain to dual citizenship in the kingdom of this world and the kingdom that is to come. Now hear me, this is really important. If you are a proud, arrogant jerk who is ignored or mocked for your faith, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to the condescending, hyper-spiritual, I'm-always-right Christian who lacks social graces and social IQ, who are mocked and maligned not for their faith, but because they're jerks. Sometimes this makes us play the martyr, or sometimes it makes us play the angry prophet. In either case, I'm not talking to you. You're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're being persecuted because you're annoying. The gospel is a stench to those who are perishing. You don't need to make it stinkier. 
And by the way, I'm also wanting to make this point. As American citizens, we are not protected from what Peter says in the last half of three and all of four. We are not protected from the kind of suffering pictured here. The next step of this passage is not to pause and thank God that we can worship freely, though we can. It's not to pause and offer gratitude that we live in a Christian nation. Because, side note, we don't live in a Christian nation, and we won't live in a Christian nation until the oppressed among us are brought justice, period. Period. Until there are among us who just by the nature of their skin are worried about being pulled over, this is not a Christian nation. And so our rights in the First Amendment, we are not protected from the suffering. In fact, American society is just as secular and just as hostile to the way of Rome. And and listen, I'm going to say it again. And as long as, as Dr. Brian Stevenson says, slavery is just something that has evolved in our country and not been eradicated, we don't live in a Christian nation. We can't claim that. If your faith costs you nothing, if there is no discomfort for following Jesus in your social circles, if there has never been a question asked of you about your faith that made you stop and think, if I answer this question truthfully, it's going to cost me something, whether that's about Jesus being the only way or marriage or any number of other questions, if you have not felt the difficult, slow, drip-drop suffering by the mocking and maligning and passive-aggressive comments, not from the media, who cares, but from your friends and your family, can I just ask what kingdom you're living in? Can I ask you where your conviction lies? If the suffering that Peter says is a matter of course, for the way of Jesus does not touch your life, can I ask you why that is? Let me pray, and uh, Jairus is going to lead us in response time. Father, we confess a level of comfort and an addiction to comfort that is not of you. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, wake us up, that we would be discomforted, that we would be uh, aggravated, by your Holy Spirit, pushed out of our comfort zone to follow follow Jesus. The Jesus who went to a cross, who entrusted his soul to a faithful creator while doing good, who said, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, so this is this is response time. So we're going to take a, a few moments to um, kind of process what God might be saying and what we're going to do about it. So um, I wrote down a few questions, and I'll just share with you. Um, so this is in line with what Kyle just said. Am I suffering for righteousness? I think it is is important that if if we're not, then we should we should maybe the Father is inviting us. Um, to check check into that, to to investigate, to examine our our, uh, our life and our thinking and and all that. Um, also, what is your suffering producing in you? Joy, sorrow, life or death, blessings or curses? Is it building up or, or causing you to tear down? And also. The last uh, last verse of, of that. Are you continuing to do what is good? 
um, and put entrusting entrusting uh, yourselves with with the the good creator, the faithful creator. Um, that's a clear invitation, in in my opinion. To if you're not, then just to think about that. Maybe you're being invited to put your trust in in our faithful creator. Um, we're just going to take a, a few moments to respond to that. And also, I just wanted to remind you that if you do need prayer or prayer cel- celebration, prayer.